Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's move forward, and uh, I had my top story planned for today, but I'm going to pivot because of the new U.S. Preventative Services uh, Task Force announcement today, changing the recommendations around mammograms. Now, mammograms are one of the two preventative services that we've been doing since, well, really started promoting it in the 80s. We were really got the test and really started pushing in the 80s. And the goal was, let's prevent preventable deaths. Good goal. And mammograms over the last 40 years have shown that they do just that. But science marches on and society changes. We'll come to that in a minute. The new recommendations are that women 40 years and older at risk for breast cancer. Now, That's kind of an interesting caveat. If you have two breasts, you're at risk for breast cancer. And if you live to be 85, you have a 12% chance of getting it. So you want to probably uh, monitor and get, if you do get it, if you are one of that one in eight who lives to 85 who gets it, well then, yeah, you want to find it at 62 when it first gets rolling and get that thing out of there so that you make it to 85. But there are a lot of different recommendations, and the commentator on the radio uh, that I was listening to talking about this said, ask the uh, former head of the United States Preventative uh, Healthcare Task Force, what, uh, how come there, there are different recommendations? And I thought she punted on her response. So I'm going to start off just with a, a few musings on that, because there, this is one of the things I think that affects our credibility in medicine is that we have all these different recommendations. And part of the reason that they vary is because they're made by large institutions, which even though they're science-based, they have different goals. So for example, they have different priorities. Um, the American Cancer Society. The American Cancer Society's charter says they want to find and prevent cancers They want early detection so that people don't die of cancers, and they want to promote research to fight cancer. And that's their thing. So finding cancers early is really all that they're after, and they've been recommending getting mammograms at 40 for a very long time because there's no downside from the the standpoint of their value set. Think about the American College of Cardiology. They want to prevent death from coronary artery disease. They want to uh, also reduce the prevalence of complications from coronary artery disease. But they're not necessarily... So cardiologists, for example, are all over statins. They want to put statins in the water supply because it would you know, reduce the frequency of coronary artery disease, but not without a cost. But they aren't really concerned with the cost. They aren't concerned with side effects. They aren't concerned uh, with, and I'm not talking monetary costs per se, although those do factor in. I'm ta- that From the cardiology standpoint, they don't. They don't care that somebody might not, might not be able to afford their medicines. They want you know, to recommend the medicine. They don't really care if a small, uh, moderate percentage of people, say 10%, get brain fog from the medicine because, 
you know, from their standpoint, our goal is to prevent the heart attack. And forget about the brain fog. The U.S. Preventative Health Care Task Force, for example, has additional and different values. It's it's about working within a budget. What should the United States suggest, and this is even more for countries that have, you know, fully uh, single-payer or otherwise socialized medical care, what should they say and advocate for? Because that becomes law. I mean, the American Card- College of Cardiology can say something and you can go against it. But the minute that this task force says, yeah, you should be doing this, we all tend to fall into line. And it tends to be fairly rigorous in terms of its science base. It's not, uh, it, it's slow. They have, their additional values include funding. They also include downstream effects on all-cause mortality. So, yes, this is a good thing to do to screen for, let's say, prostate cancer. But the, but prostate cancer, you know, after t- 40 years of looking at PSAs, yeah, you can't really say that PSAs in the entire population make sense because a lot of those cancers don't kill people, and yet we kill them treating them, the cancer. And so, particularly in older gentlemen, you may just want to let the prostate cancer sit there uh, and let nature take its course because probably the other diseases that will kill this person will outrun the cancer in terms of the the risk to benefit ratio there. And meanwhile, you're doing surgery, uh, fairly significant surgery to take out a prostate in an 85 year old. They're likely to die of surgical complications when they might have just lived happily ever after for another decade with their prostate cancer. So, this is a different way of looking at it. And there's also the quality of life aspect of it. Are you saving someone's life but leaving them, them with a very poor quality of life because of your treatment? And certainly with many cancer treatments, we could make that argument that it's just not worth it. That's not what I want to talk about today, but I think it's worth pointing out. So they're very conservative. They're very slower. It's been They go slow. It's been 10 years since their last change, and a lot has happened in that 10 years, for one thing, mammograms have become much more accurate. We have better resolution and we have computer aided reading technology, which has become much more sophisticated. And we have image processing technology, which has become, oh my God, you know, see, think CGI and uh, what they can do in the movies. Well, that level of processing brought to diagnostic imaging has also been a serious game changer. So we're more able to find breast cancers in those 40-year-old women who are still cycling and have denser breasts. And the real reason that they changed this, I think, is that we have seen many more deaths from cancer in younger and younger people over the last decade. Often, these are aggressive cancers showing up in young people. In fact, if you're unlucky enough for to get cancer while you're young, it does tend to be more aggressive because your cells are young and healthy, which means your cancer cells are healthier and stronger and more vigorous, which is not what you want from your cancer. Why is this? Why are we seeing more cancer in younger people? Well, there's more obesity. That's well-established. There's more diabetes in younger people. So a lot of those 40-year-old women are diabetic or pre-diabetic and or also overweight. So those are risk factors for breast cancer all by themselves. And that's well-established. 
also, uh, and this is not universally accepted, so I want to put, you know, the disclosure up front, microplastics and plastics uh, chemicals in general, like BPA, have hormonal effects, and breast cancer is a hormone-sensitive cancer. So I think that's a factor as well. Now, I do want to point out uh, to uh, trans women that the hormones you take do increase your risk of breast cancer, and uh, that's important. We also tend to forget about when we do a transition on someone we leave behind the prostate. And I have uh, several trans women in my practice, and I have to remind myself that it, you have you have an organ in there that can get cancer that I forget you've got because I'm running a different set of uh, preventative care strategies. And so it's an interesting dance as our society changes with what makes sense as a preventative recommendation. So I thought you would maybe find that interesting. We're going to be heading for some emails in just a moment. But first, a few short news stories. The first one is superbugs found in the L.A. wastewaters. So, you know, we've been doing wastewater treatment surveillance now. Uh, That really came of age during the early days of the COVID epidemic. But we're now using it to track you know, all new emerging diseases, monkeypox, for example, uh, lots of diseases. We're now watching the poop, basically watching the poop and watching the urine, because when you've got a bug in you, uh, it comes out in the poop and the urine. So we can sample that fresh sewage and we can know what pipe led to what neighborhood. And we can actually uh, replicate the, uh, in a weird way, we're reverse engineering uh, just as cholera uh, was discovered, the idea of cholera was discovered uh, that that it was, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the scientist now, please, you know, people forgive me for that. But a very astute physician figured out that the cholera epidemics in London were coming from this one water pump. And when they capped the water pump, uh, the cholera levels in the neighborhood plummeted, and they realized that bacterial contamination in the water supply was a thing. And prior to that, it really was evil humors, you know, floating around on the air. And, of course, you know, fast forward 100 years, and we've got a problem with our antibiotics not working anymore because the bacteria have evolved. So what they found in the in two of the largest treatment plants in LA, and we're talking about 7.5 million people's samples, they found resistance genes, uh, plasmids, these are little loops of DNA, and plasmids have this really interesting uh, uh, property in that bacteria can email them. So a bacteria will email another bacteria, even a bacteria of a different species, this plasmid, and this plasmid says, here's how you can be resistant to penicillin. And that means that these plasmids can share the secret to resistance, and we're running out of antibiotics. So these bacteria were significant, these plasmids were significant because they gave the key to evading colistin, which is an ancient antibiotic that everybody forgot about. And then as these superbugs have reemerged, we've dusted it off and said, oh, wait, this still works, knowing all the time that it was only a matter of time before it stopped. So now 
Uh, they also included resistance against the carbipenems, which are the other last-ditch, last-resort, very expensive antibiotic that we've got. So right now, this is a problem for immunocompromised people, people in the hospital, but it's not going to stay there any more than MRSA stayed in the hospital 20 years ago. It's going to get out into the communities. We're emerging into a post-antibiotic world, and that is pretty scary. Another interesting thing, quite parenthetical and having nothing to do with the previous story, but fun, is that researchers have figured out that back in 3000 BC, uh, besides inventing the wheel and irrigation and uh, sophisticated art, those Bronze Age people were also getting high. So in a burial cave um, on a Spanish island, Researchers found the remains of about 200 people who'd been laid to rest over six centuries, three, uh, 4,000 years ago. And what they found were boxes of tufts of hair that were dyed red. And when they tested the hair, they found that these people had been taking atropine and scopolamine and ephedrine. So they were taking basically uh, drugs that are hallucinogens, plus a stimulant drug so that they could stay awake and hallucinate. Uh, these aren't useful as pain kill, uh, killers, and if you take too much, you can get very, very sick. You can get effectively what people who get a pesticide overdose get. Uh, so scopolamine is also being used in medicine in very small doses in patches. It's what it's what's in those seasickness patches, and it comes from a, uh, from the plant the datura, which is also that beautiful angel's trumpet plant that you see ornamentally. I can't grow them in my garden, which is a source of much sadness for me. But you do uh, see them growing all over Santa Cruz. Just don't eat up the roots. Don't dig up the roots and eat it because you can die. So please don't do that. Uh, it is, however, super interesting to me that these that this was being done. And they think it was a religious ritual, first of all, because of the hair being dyed red and being you know, placed in a box. It seems like this was maybe the sacred priest or something like that. But, you know, humans have been uh, being inventive with the uh, with plants and uh, animal substances for a very, very long time. It looks like we have, uh, I got an announcement that we have a caller. All right, very good. Hello there. Sandy, are you there? No, I'm here. Okay, yeah, great. I'm here. Where are you calling from, and what is your, what would you like to talk about? I'm calling from uh, Aptos at the moment, and I'd like to mention a, uh, an interesting thing that happened with my insurance carrier. My primary uh, care physician um, said, let's do a general health checkup, and we'll do a blood screening. And uh, while we're doing that, we'll do a prostate. And my insurance company said, wait, you're a female. We can't do a prostate scan on you. And they refused it. And I think um, that's true in some cases, certainly not true in all. And I'm sure if we went back and argued with them, uh, they, they would change their minds. But it was an interesting little glitch in mm -hmm. the rules that uh, I thought you might find interesting. Well, let me just clarify. Are you, are you a trans woman? I am. Okay. And I have I ran into this 
20 years ago uh, when I was practicing up in Scotts Valley. Same exact problem because mm-hmm. the, you, you know, and it goes, it goes back to gender and sex. And essentially mm-hmm. your cells have a sex. They have either two, an X and a Y chromosome or two X chromosomes. And that is an indisputable fact. You, there are a few people who have two X's and one Y and a few people who have one X and that's it. And if you have one Y, you're out of luck, you die. Uh, you've got to have that X chromosome. It's uh, To not have it is incompatible with life. So I, th- I think that is a good reason to let women rule, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, getting back to this, th- you don't fit into the right categories. And the, these categories are, categories need to be fluid, but but insurance companies are the op- opposite of flexible, you know, and the, uh, you, you basically have to keep knocking on the door and re, uh, you know, until until it gets kicked up, because the people at the lower end are, they're basically not, you know, they're not well trained. They aren't necessarily highly educated, and it's a drone job, you know. And they're just here's your list of things that you can do. You don't have any agency. If it doesn't make sense, deny it. And then uh, later on, you can get to the supervisor or the supervisor of the supervisor, and they start thinking, just like I was talking about earlier in the show about value sets, they start thinking about, hmm, consumer response to this particular situation. And they go, huh, maybe we need to change those rules. And I don't know what, uh, I can't imagine a, uh, a cis woman or a gay woman who is an XX uh, wanting a PSA. So, yes, okay, let's not, so let's just not ask for one. But there, there are now at least, uh, you know, leaving your sexual orientation aside and just looking at your sexual or your gender identification, uh, we've basically got four categories now. <laughs> that it's, as, it's as simple as that. We're not, for a trans man, we're not going to go in there and take out the ovaries. And, you know, we're not, and yet ovarian cancer, right? And they're screening blood tests for ovarian cancer. But yes, but yet what box am I going to say? I mean, you're a woman. So uh, you're, I'm going to check female on the box. You're going to check female on the box. And the computer is going to say, oh, female. Well, here's the list of things we should be doing. And here's, and uh, I don't know how we fix this except through, at what the way we've fixed society's lack of acceptance of transgender in the first place, which is lots and lots of years of advocacy and hard work and standing up for ourselves, and, th- and that's basically the only way you can change an institution. <laughs> yeah, it will take time, but we'll get there. We will. Thank you so much for calling and uh, describing such a humorous situation. Thank, thank you. I love your show. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. Bye. All right. We're going to go to emails now. So that was a perfect segue. And uh, this one came from a patient who has a very serious chronic back pain. And he sent me an email. And the email said, uh, what do you think of this? And it was this, it was just a link to a, a, an outfit called Regenex Spinal Um uh, information, alternatives to back surgery. So uh, I talked, uh, this, I looked it over, I went to the website, 
And, you know, it's all the reasons why back surgery is bad for you and dangerous. And then it talks about placing high-dose cells from your body directly where they're needed in a specific joint structure. They're talking about mesenchymal stem cells, which are a multi, uh, it's not a pluripotential stem cell. It can't turn into anything. It's car- It's basically mesenchyme. So that's muscle, cartilage, ligaments, and tendons. And those are the ones that are uh, you know, the stem cells that, may go- that turn into that are what we're talking about. And you can get those out of bone marrow. Uh, you can get them out of cord blood. So all good so far. But the problem is... Uh, it's also being overhyped, overpriced. It's being, it is not covered by any insurance because the data isn't there to support it. So I very interesting went and looked down into the actual uh, research because they said, oh, well, here's articles. And I went through every single one of the articles and there were only two about back surgery, although they're promoting this for back surgery. Let me emphasize most of the articles that they posted were about knee surgery uh, which I thought was very interesting because there was 20 articles, none of them about the thing that they were advertising. The two that were actually about back surgery were actually uh, feasibility and safety studies. So there, can we take mesenchymal stem cells and inject them into the spine? And is that, not is it going to help, but just can we do that safely? And what, and, you know, a procedure study basically. And it took me back to a conference uh, that I went to which uh, at, it's an alternative medicine con, uh, group, not, it's called A for M. And it's kind of, uh, you know, you have the, uh, you have like, you have c- Comic Con, right? You have uh, Space Con, you have these cons. And this was, this is a, Hype con, this A4M. It's it's a huckster con, is what it is. Everybody is is you know just trying to sell their thing, and a lot of these people are really good salespeople. So it's fun to go and listen to them talk. And I had this one conversation in the hot tub, which is a great place to have conversations with this guy who was doing uh, umbilical cord. Uh, there's something called Wharton's jelly, which is a gooey material in an umbilical cord. And if you strip off the skin, you get with a single umbilical cord, uh, you can basically harvest an ounce or so of this stuff. And it's full of stem cells. So all good so far. Wharton's jelly, you can go buy it online and you can inject it into your patients. And this was his business. And he injects it into joints and he injects it into things and there's there's basically been some research into this in these stem quote unquote putative stem cells. There's also been research in something called platelet rich plasma, which is just you know it's centrifuge off the blood and take the platelet layer, which is above the red blood cell and white blood cell layer, but below the pure saltwater layer, take that and inject that into people and. If you compare those two, and plus injecting saline, what you see is that you do get temporary reduction in inflammation from these injections. They're about the same in the studies I've seen between the Wharton's jelly and the platelet-rich plasma. And there's no data, unfortunately, that you get cartilage rebuilding itself. But then if you have ever read an in-flight magazine, you see these 
these images before and after, and they're bogus, okay? They're simply bogus. There's nothing in the actual medical literature that supports this. We can't get the cartilage to grow in a nice, smooth fashion is the problem. We can get lumps of cartilage growing on the inside of your knee. This does you no good whatsoever. But what we do see is a temporary reduction in pain. So if you're in the middle of a flare and you've got places to go, it's probably reasonable to get this injection, but do not expect it to regrow your uh, cartilage. Do not expect it to be an alternative. Uh, It is at best a patch that will wear off. And I think it's super important to uh, bring that to your attention. Barry in uh, Pacific Grove. And let's see her email. My husband will be 72 in a couple of months. His glucose-related lab work as of very recent is now the following. Hemoglobin A1C 5.9, estimated plasma glucose 132.7. And then it gives a normal value between 70 and 126, which is... uh, does not, in fact, match the number that he's that she's been given because uh, it's showing a high, and yet uh, the little thing says hemoglobin A1C up to six percent. So that's because they've revised the values, <laughs> they revised revised the score, but they didn't quite revise their uh, their information that they're sending out to patients. Continuing with Barry, uh, he is not overweight. And he and I eat the same diet. My last estimated plasma glucose was 82. His physician pays a lot of attention to his cholesterol numbers and whether or not he should take a statin. And today he told him to come back in three months after my husband has more opportunity to do research on the statin himself. Apparently, nothing much was said about the glucose-related labs. I wasn't there, so this is all all I know. I am worried, as it seems pretty loose to me. Is it because he is in his 70s? Thank you very much for any input you can give. Well, I I don't know if he was seeing his cardiologist. If he was seeing his cardiologist, again, that value set issue, Barry, is at work, the cardiologist being focused on his cholesterol. Uh, In terms of what happens as we age, depending upon our genes, we have a breakdown in our insulin resistance. And so some of us can eat chocolate ice cream for uh, dinner every night and never get diabetic, and others of us uh, are already showing signs of of, uh, type 2 diabetes at a normal body weight, uh, depending on what we eat. So there's a, a large amount of genetic predisposition. A lot has to do with what was going on with your grandmother, uh, whether your grandmother was starving, your maternal grandmother, or if she had food shortages, your risk of diabetes will be higher. And we can't even look at the epigenetics and determine that one. That's just a black box right now. We don't have testing for that. But what we do see is that there's quite a lot of variation. This is a typical thing for people in their 70s that they have a mismatch in terms of what sort of uh, chronic diseases are starting to emerge. At A1C of 5.9 is definitely pre-diabetic, and it indicates insulin resistance. So you don't have insulin resistance. He does. Uh, in terms of your diet, I would make several recommendations uh, if you're not already doing these things. 
including a quarter teaspoon of cinnamon in his coffee, uh, using uh, nopal cactus, which can uh, be purchased at any Mexican market. It's basically a kind of, uh, I, I get a salsa made out of it sometimes when I go to a local restaurant called Copal. It's very nice. Uh, but it's a very good di- diabetic drug. A lot of recipes out there for how to cook nopal. You can also get it in capsules, but I always say, you know, go with the food. So that's something to look at. Uh, fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids, and in a person with high cholesterol, which apparently he's being pushed to do a statin, I'd go up to four grams of omega-3 fatty acids, and you're going to want to do that with a supplement. But uh, you want to be sure that you're getting at least a 1,000 milligrams of EPA and a 1,000 milligrams of DHA uh, when you turn over the label on that omega-3. The, whole, the, the amount that we want to see your husband getting is about 2,000, and this will lower cholesterol, uh, maybe not as much as he needs, but in a study using Lipitor 10 milligrams and this dose of omega-3 fatty acids, they were uh, they were equivalent in terms of their ability to lower your LDL bad cholesterol. So it's if you take enough of these natural things, you can actually get a substantial benefit. Another natural product that would be useful to him is berberine. And berberine, B-E-R-B-E-R-I-N-E, is uh, really uh, great from the standpoint of fighting uh, bacteria, in adverse bacteria in the gut. It is helpful as an antiviral, but it's an anti-diabetic. It's an insulin sensitizer. So the dose there is 500 milligrams three times a day. And between these three things, he may be able to get his cholesterol down to a point that his doctor is happy and will stop bugging him to take a statin. The doctor will feel obligated to recommend a statin because that's on the list of health care preventative things for certain levels. And Again, I'm not anti-statin, but I use statins when I have to because I feel the person has a substantial risk. It's very well established that if you give statins to postmenopausal women, you increase their risk of diabetes. I do not know how well established it is that you increase the risk of diabetes in post, you know, in older men. I haven't seen that data. I don't know if anyone's done that study, but that's a concern when you've got someone who's pre-diabetic and they have high cholesterol. Do we not just need to modify the diet and try to uh, get to it that way before we give them a drug that might worsen the op- the other condition? I'm asking that as a rhetorical question because I honestly don't have the answer. But I hope that this has been helpful in bringing you to a point of acceptance and also giving you some suggestions about where to go from here. All right, and I'm going to watch that email for more emails, but right now we're going to take an email from Teresa. Teresa is in New Mexico. So Teresa writes, Dr. Don, I was very excited to hear you talk about phage treatment and research. I've been recently diagnosed with equivocal Bartonella from two, what I consider to be reliable labs, uh, Cyrex and Dr. Mozinyeni's T-Lab. 
Uh, in 2010, I was given three months of IV treatment for Bartonella. By the way, folks, Bartonella is a uh, a tick-borne disease. It's similar to Lyme. It's one of those things that is uh, hard to diagnose, and it's what they call a fastidious bacteria, so it can be uh, hard to grow in culture, so it's difficult to demonstrate if it's really there. And uh, so checking antibodies only tells you if you did have it. Uh, if you still have hold, held on to those antibodies, it might give you a false positive. And so that's really the issue here. So she continues, I followed the phase re, phage research community and was excited you addressed this subject. Here in the U.S., we now have the ability to be tested for Borrelia at RED Lab. They'll soon have the ability to test for Bartonella. How would you rate the information given by this company? I want to avoid throwing money away. So I'm going to uh, take a moment and wax, uh, before we get to Teresa's answer, I'm going to uh, wax uh, enthusiastic about this phage technology. I uh, I called this sec- segment uh, Phages on Stun. Uh, phages are viruses, but these are viruses that infect bacteria. And they're beautiful little creatures. They sort of look like someone took a spider and welded the mo- the lunar lem module on top of it and sent it to crawl around. And these l- these little viruses are over a hundred years old in terms of our knowledge of using them to fight disease. There's a long history. I went over that uh, last week and so, or week before last. So I recommend you take a look at that. But, uh, you know, we're in trouble. I already gave you this article earlier about the post-antibiotic age. It's been 40 years since anybody came up with a new class of antibiotics. And things are coming back. We've now got multi-resistant gonorrhea, multi-resistant tuberculosis. Uh, Antibiotic-resistant bacteria caused at least 1.2 million deaths in the United States in 2019. Uh, just to put that in perspective, uh, about 50,000 women die of breast cancer in the United States every year, and I'm not happy with that number, but compared to 1.2 million, yeah, we really do need to take this seriously. Uh, there's really two ways that phages work. There's lysogenic, which means they go in there and they insert their own DNA into the host. And we, by the way, have tons of fossil viral DNA uh, sitting around in our DNA. It is not being coded. It is not being transcribed, but sometimes it does get transcribed. And there's actually uh, strong evidence that, uh, that certain autoimmune diseases are triggered by the transcription of this fossilized viral DNA. So, uh, Epstein-Barr virus being one of the ones that's been most clearly implicated in certain autoimmune diseases, uh, specifically multiple sclerosis. So if a phage is lytic, and that's the ones that we're going to weaponize against bacteria, it gets in there and starts making copies of itself and re- mindlessly making copies of itself a la Sorcerer's Apprentice from Fantasia until the cell bursts open killing the bacteria and spreading the phage to other bacteria that happen to be around. And the good things about them is they're very, they reproduce. So they're, you can give small amounts. Uh, 
you're, it's hard to be allergic to them. That's also a plus. Uh, they can evolve and they are effectively, they're effectively evolving with their prey. So you can always find a phage that will kill a bacteria. It's hard for them to evolve resistance. And they're actually available. So one of the things I wanted to, uh, I went to the website, this Felix Phage uh, website, and looked at it. And uh, they're use, they're looking at the rickettsial diseases right now. Uh, and I didn't actually see uh, Lyme disease on here. But, uh, but uh, well, yes, actually, they are now promoting it for Borrelia. I take it back. They started out with other tick-borne diseases and they're coming up with kits and essentially you draw the blood and send it in uh, I did not see the the cost on this but what's interesting here is that they aren't using the phages to kill the bacteria they're using the phages to identify whether the bacteria is present so phages can get into biofilms and that's one of the reasons why it can be hard to find these bacteria and they create, uh, but in doing so, you can uh, detect a signal, essentially. Uh, so they they can see whether or not you have the bug. And I'm not, the website doesn't really clarify for me exactly how this works, but I could see how it would, uh, because if you have, think about it this way, if you infect the virus, you put in a certain amount of the virus, uh, the the phage goes into the blood, you know how much you put in, you incubate it, and then if the the bacteria is in the blood or in the the urine, you're going to see it, uh, you're going to see more of the phage than you put in. So it's growing, and because they can only grow inside the bacteria that is their target, you know or can infer that that bacteria is present. So I'm I'm not able to really say that I can validate the science. The concept makes sense to me, but there's not enough detail here in the website to really say for sure whether it works. Uh, But I think it could legitimately work, and I'd uh, recommend doing more research on it before you plonk down your money. Uh, you might want to look at just the the technology and the concept. So, for if it works for rickettsia, they probably they look like they've been doing that long enough that there should be published research validating the idea and describing in more detail the methods. And I just got this email today, so I certainly will will look around and see what I can find because it's intriguing. But my path will be to look at the stuff they've been doing as lo- for the longest and see if there are any studies. Uh, that are peer-reviewed, published, and showing that it works. Uh, But it really could be a very interesting strategy here. There are a lot of phage companies coming out, and I want to take a moment and describe those, uh, because it's a growth industry, (laughs) pardon the pun. Uh, The first and the oldest company has been around for almost 100 years. It was founded by a Georgian scientist at Soviet Georgia named George Eliava, and he has the Eliava Foundation's Phage Therapy Center. And they are in in, in the former Soviet Georgia, now just Georgia, and they treat about uh, 500 foreign patients a year. And if you go there to get your 
bug treated, it costs $4,000 and you get two months worth, two weeks worth of on-site treatment and another month worth of bottled phage to, uh, to take home. And it's basically just water that with back with virus in it. And you drink that and it gets into your system and it goes after the bug. It's kind of crazy, but viruses go everywhere, right? We've established that. I think we've all experienced in the last uh, three years uh, exactly what that's like. So phages are very target specific. And the Eliava people have like a huge phage library, one of the world's largest. But how do you find them in the first place? Well, you go and look where the bacteria is. So uh, basically human sewage, uh, hospital waste, these are reliable sources of resistant bacteria. And then you can use antibodies to, to find the viruses uh, and test them and see if they're phages and see if they infect your target bacteria. So there's a Portuguese company in, uh, called Technophage that just completed a trial last year of a phage cocktail that's designed for patients with diabetic foot ulcers. These can be very hard to, uh, to treat. And so it's basically a goo that you put on the diabetic foot, uh, foot ulcer that kills all of the bacteria. There's a company called Biomax, which is testing its own cocktail against Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is the, one of the most dreaded hospital uh, acquired infections. Pseudomonas aeruginosa lives in ventilator tubing. Let me say that again. It likes water. It lives in the condensed air in ventilator tubing, and it's very hard to sterilize it out. So uh, there's another company uh, that's called Adaptive Phage Therapeutics. This one's in America. Uh, they've got a cystic fibrosis pat- uh Patent, so the lungs, right? You're going to inbreed this stuff, these phages in probably, just in, nebulize them in and uh, let them go to work on those antibiotic-resistant bacteria in your lungs. There's another one for infections in prosthetic joints. If your artificial knee gets infected, you're looking at you know, something like 6 to 12 weeks of IV antibiotics with the attending devastation, uh, devastation to your microbiome. This takes care of that. Uh, there's a, they have another one for diabetic foot ulcers, which are a huge problem in our society and going to get huger. You can also, uh, but the problem is you can't, you can't patent a natural phage, but you can, you know, cut and paste it with CRISPR to make it eligible for production. And then once it's tweaked, somebody else will have to tweak another one. Uh, and find it. So at least it, uh, certainly it's it's an easier field of entry than building antibodies. Uh, so I think a uh, good thing to do. Another thing that they can patent, this is an article in The Economist, so they're always like, you know, what's the business model here? You can uh, patent the phage library. You can patent your manufacturing process. And you can also do things like stents, or other, or in fact, artificial joints, dressing, implants that are coated in phages that uh, would be completely patentable. And the fast thing, you know, this throughput thing, uh, the company says they can go from the identification of a bacterium to regulatory approval of a phage to kill it within six months. Now, if you were going to do that with an antibiotic, it's going to take 15 years. 
And the FDA and the EU have seen the light and are changing their rules to make infecting people with viruses to kill bacteria a legitimate field. Uh, they're also, you know, think about animal farming, regular factory farming uses huge quantities of antibiotics. A lot of that gets into the meat. It sets up antibacterial uh, resistance. It's one of the huge drivers of this post-antibiotic era. And it, uh, if we let them use phages, they could get the benefits potentially. Uh, also, crops, right? It's been the phages have been used to treat rot in cabbages, but they could work for corn, potatoes, citrus fruits. So, remember the potato famine? You probably learned about that in history. Drove a lot of Irish immigrants to the United States. Uh, when a food chain collapses, it's a very big deal. Uh, there's a Norwegian film that's using it, a uh, firm that's using it for fish farming. And uh, let's see, they wrote, they launched a program uh, in 2018. The sales are up a thousand percent and they're going after a salmon bacteria in salmon farms. So there's, there's trouble down the road. You know, we're going to have to figure out how not to make antibodies against the phages, uh, potentially, it's a one-shot deal because the person will make antibodies, recognizing that this is a virus. It will form antibodies against it, which could prevent it from working a second time. And so repeat infections could be an issue. But I think that's, if even if it's a one-shot, when you've got these very rare but very, very, well, increasingly less rare things floating around, this is a really, really good way to go after them. So exciting stuff coming up, and I'm, uh, you know, very grateful to have gotten this question because it gave me a chance to chase some things down and learn something, which, you know, that's currency for me. Right now, sex hormones and the gut microbiome. So, of course, no surprise, uh, we know that Gonadal steroid hormones like testosterone and estrogen regulate the immune response, and they're integral to optimum health as we age from both the bones to the brain. Well, of course, it turns out that the gut microbiome connection works with this as well. Just for an example, and this is one I've been tracking for years in my medical practice, is the presence of uh, a substance called beta-glucuronidate. This is an enzyme that's made by certain bacteria, and these are dysbiotic bacteria, bad bacteria, uh, also can be made by some, fung- by some yeasts. And it basically deconjugates estrogen metabolites, so it gets in the way of getting rid of estrogen. Guess what? When I check women who are come who are young women who are coming in with breast cancer, uh, no family history, I just about always find high levels of beta glucuronide in their system. I'm not saying it's causing the cancer, and I have certainly got confirmation bias, but I also check do this check on women who don't have breast cancer, and I would I should probably just go through all of the labs I've got and publish it because there's probably a paper there showing a correlation. But what happens is if the est- the estrogen is pinned ef- effectively uh, to a molecule that won't let it out of the gut, once you p- 
once you get it into your bile and put it into your poop, it stays there unless something comes along and cuts that chain that binds it to this other compound. And that chain is an active uh, molecular bond. It's food for certain bacteria. So they break it down and harvest the energy. And in the meantime, increase your cancer risk. So we've known that things went that way. But also it turns out that there's probably a two-way street here. So researchers are beginning to identify a bidirectional sex hormone microbiota uh, interaction, and there's data. There's, you know, there's data that that testosterone and estrogen create different microbiomes, and that these have implications for things like metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, and the way that things manifest uh, differently between between. Uh, persons with high testosterone and persons with high estrogen. So for example, there's a association in men with type 2 diabetes. So if you have low testosterone, you develop a gut bacteria profile that leads to insulin resistance and a higher risk of developing further diabetes. Uh, One study looked at psychological uh, benefits. It had over a thousand uh, males and uh, 3,500 females, give or take. And they looked at psychological symptoms, depression, neurocognition, stress and anxiety, with, and sleep and fatigue. And what they found was that uh, psychological symptom severity varied in a sex dependent manner for all four, uh, with women doing worse. And then going on to look at that, the micro biologic diversity is very different. So uh, this group, this other study looked at women who were obese or had polycystic ovary syndrome, breast cancer, osteopenia or osteoporosis, and quote unquote healthy women. Uh, And they looked at levels of, and and they also had men in the study, same set of diseases. Uh, They looked at testosterone and estrogen and the gut microbiome. And what they found was that in women, uh, higher estrogen levels were associated with more of a bacteria called bacterioidetes and lower levels of firmicutes. And we've known for a long time that if your firmicutes level, if your ratio of firmicutes to bacterioides is low, that means the bacterioides outnumber the firmicutes, you have a lower BMI, less obesity, and healthier gut. Root vegetables are the key to raising the levels of bacterioidetes. A high-fat diet will raise your firmicutes. So I'll often look when I do my testing at the firmicutes to bacterioides ratio and be able to infer whether this person, for example, is on a paleo uh, uh, paleo diet, whether they're basically on a meat diet, lots and lots of meat, kind of Atkins paleo, or whether they're on lots and lots of vegetables, uh, by this ratio, I can really tell. But root vegetables in particular are important. Now, in men with, in healthy men, if you have a high testosterone level, you have higher levels of ruminococcus, acinetobacter, and more diversity. Diversity is always good in the microbiome as in society. So levels of ruminococcus, which is a, a very key in the conversion of complex sugars to host nutrients. In other words, it breaks down fiber 
into something you can digest. Uh, this is the cow stomach bacteria. The cows have four stomachs, and they break hay into into essentially sugar. They do that by having really good enzymes. Where are those enzymes coming from? They're coming from ruminococcus. And this particular level is very sensitive, and it reduces your diabetes to have high levels of ruminococcus. Uh, women who are healthy, who have high testosterone levels, actually end up with lower levels of ruminococcus. So go figure. See, this is why you've really got to study women and not just generalize the results because often it goes exactly the opposite way and it's a mystery exactly what. Also, they found that women with higher testosterone and lower estrogen, this would be the group with polycystic ovary disease, had a very different uh, microbiota profile, something that uh, suggests to me that maybe the Maybe the microbiome could be causing polycystic ovary disease and being the trigger, because we've never really quite understood how this thing hits. But if the microbiome is the answer, no wonder we can't figure it out, because that's not going to show up in the bloodstream. So basically, if you, and then one study, which is really cool, this is in polycystic ovary disease, they gave a combination of probiotic and prebiotic uh, and to women with PCOS. And what they found was that they were able to lower their fasting plasma glucose, their fasting insulin, their insulin resistance, and also reduce their testosterone levels by a substantial amount. So Using the microbiome, weaponizing it, if you will, against disease, we're starting to get the data. We're starting to have uh, a real strategy for this. And it's a very exciting time to be, well, listening to Ask Dr. Don. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDon.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at Ask Dr. Dawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.